0: When my grandmother was in her early 80s, the senior center in the small town where she had lived her entire life offered a class for older folks to write down their life stories. My grandma had less formal education than her children and grandchildren, but she had very good grammar and beautiful handwriting. And in that handwriting, she wrote out dozens of pages about her life, her parents' life, and the lives of her children. My mom typed up the handwritten notes on an early version of a Macintosh computer. I did a bit of proofreading, and copies of this book in little gray binders were printed out for my grandma's five children and 16 grandchildren. My grandma chose the title, Clouds and Rainbows, to reflect the ups and downs of life. There are indeed some very down times in her life the death of one of her brothers at the age of 17 in a drowning accident, and the economic challenges for her, Im- for her immigrant father and the working class rural family she lived in. But on the whole, my grandma centered her story on satisfaction and gratitude. Gratitude for relationships, gratitude for church and for health and for the gift of life. After she wrote her autobiography, she went on to live another 15 years. This meant that some milestones like her first overseas trip at the age of 89 did not get written down. But I've been very grateful to have all that she did record. And I don't doubt that my grandma's focus on the rainbows instead of the clouds played a role in her longevity. It wasn't until after my grandmother's death that I started to understand that more clouds had crossed her life than she had written down. Some of those clouds were quite dark. For example, the effects of alcohol abuse on family members across generations is absent from her narrative. Less denial of those problems along the way probably would have been helpful, but my grandma was not one to dwell on the negative. And as a number of wise thinkers have noted, wishing for a better past is not a productive use of time. Having a somewhat rose-colored view of what has happened to you in your personal life is not a crime. In fact, science is finding that it's probably even good for you. Research psychologists have a term for the common human tendency to polish our memories. It's called fading affect bias. It's a bias that most brains have to retain more positive views of our past and to more quickly forget the intensity of negative experiences. The studies on this are quite interesting. In one study, researchers had the subjects keep diaries of the events of their daily lives and the emotional intensity of their feelings at the time. After 30 days of diary keeping, the researchers took away the diaries and held on to them for periods of time. Then they would go back and ask the subjects about the everyday day events they had written about, without telling them the emotions they had originally recorded. As it turned out, the intensity of the negative emotions around past events had faded from their memories pretty quickly. The more positive feelings stuck around. The overall narrative of their lives sweetened with time. In an era when caring and aware Americans are desperately worried about what has become of the idea of truth, a human tendency toward inaccurate remembering may seem concerning but psychologists are actually fine with fading affect bias in individuals. Like my grandma, psychologists know that you can't do anything about what's happened to you in the past except interpret it and decide what to focus on. The natural tendency to retain more intense, positive feelings is seen as contributing to a positive self-concept and good mental health. A person can go too far in ignoring the negative. Failure to acknowledge and learn from your mistakes and then repeating them is bad for you and others. But a museum exhibit of your daily life curated by emphasizing the positive has psychology's stamp of approval. We are fortunate today to live in a time of ever greater understanding of the human mind, of memory, and how our brains try to keep themselves healthy. Earlier generations, such as those who fought in World War I or World War II, had much less brain science and psychology to work with. Just now, we heard Mibs Mibs Pearson's recollection of her father, who was seriously injured in World War I. He never talked about what happened until almost the end of his life. The year he died, 1980, was the year that post-traumatic stress disorder was first officially recognized as a diagnosis by the psychiatric community. Like so many soldiers before him, he was expected to keep his war memories to himself. It was the manly thing to do. And the fact that he and other veterans held so many secrets helped Americans artificially sweeten our country's past. It's a fine line for individuals to walk, emphasizing the positive memories while also being real about the past. Using reason, brain science, and knowledge of self, each person has to decide what's best. Another combat veteran, my partner's 94-year-old uncle, has never talked about his time in World War II. And he's had a long life of good personal personal relationships and career successes. That's the path that worked for him. Countless veterans have chosen this path over the past century, not wanting to relive their experiences by retelling them, not wanting to disturb others by describing what it was like to witness or take part in some of humanity's most gruesome acts. Veterans may also not want to revisit what psychologists call moral injury. Moral injury occurs when people have experiences that violate their deepest and most closely held values and principles. Killing other humans is inherently repulsive to most people. And having to kill even when it seems justified by the situation or the longer term goal can lead to an, to an existential crisis and tremendous stress, stress similar to that of PTSD. Moral injury is an emerging field of study. In recent years, the American military has examined the effects of war on pilots of unmanned drones. These pilots work remotely and may be thousands of miles from the war zone researchers have learned that some drone pilots experience stress levels similar to those of combat soldiers on the ground. Because the drone pilots know they are taking lives, sometimes of civilians. The physical distance allowed by the technology is not enough to override the humanity of the victims, or enough to override the humanity of the pilots. As Mib said, war changes everyone who serves. And we can be grateful to those who help us understand and remember what war is really like, especially in this era of increased glorification of militarism. This points to a big difference between how individuals address their past and how a country addresses its past. It's one thing to not want to talk about the horrors that you personally experienced on a battlefield in Europe or Asia. It's quite another for a country not to fully reckon with the roles that war and other kinds of violence have played in its history, and the effects of tens of millions of people on the front lines and elsewhere. United States military history is always in danger of being revised, exalted, glossed over, or reduced to questionable shorthand. If you voted, thank a veteran is a fresh example from just this past week. We can certainly be grateful to veterans for their commitment to our country's sovereignty and to its ideals. But America's military forays into Iraq, to cite just one instance, did not protect our freedom to cast ballots this past Tuesday. It is not disrespectful to point this out. It matters greatly how our country remembers its own history and that we do so accurately for the sake of veterans and for those who will serve the military in the future. One truth about our history is that Veterans Day was not always Veterans Day, as Reverend Kelly mentioned in our story earlier. The 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, back in 1918, was when the fighting between the Allied forces and Germany came to a halt, bringing about the end of World War I. In the early years after the war, the emphasis of Armistice Day was on remembering the heroism of those who fought and died, and on promoting peace so that no such war would ever happen again. In 1926, governors, Congress urged governors around the country to observe the day with thanksgiving and prayer, and exercises designed to perpetuate peace through goodwill and mutual understanding between nations. In 1928, the U.S. and other countries, including Germany and Japan, signed a treaty to abandon war as a tool of national policy. In 1938, Armistice Day became an official national holiday dedicated to the idea of world peace. But by 1938, as students of history know, the idea of there being no more war had become fantasy. As C.S. Lewis, the Christian author and theologian said, a terrified and angry pacifism is one of the roads that lead to war. In 1939, Germany invaded Poland and World War II began. Eventually 16 million Americans served in the armed forces during World War II, four times the number in World War I and the military death toll quadrupled as well. The war created a huge new wave of veterans who were joined in the early 1950s by veterans of the Korean War. This new generation of veterans led President Eisenhower to change the name of Armistice Day to Veterans Day so that all veterans would be included. This altered the meaning and the focus of the day. As Military Veterans for Peace says on its website, Armistice Day was flipped from a day for peace into a day for a display of day for displays of militarism. Honoring the warrior quickly morphed into honoring the military and glorifying war. Veterans for Peace, which promoted the idea of ringing bells this morning, bells we are hearing from our neighboring congregations right now, they've been working for some time to change the name and thus the focus from Veterans Day back to Armistice Day. Not so that we forget veterans, but that so we remember peace. I wanna add two quick thoughts to that. One is that Memorial Day, which was originally intended to honor those who died in war, has to some extent also morphed into a second Veterans Day, with some parades celebrating militarism more than honoring sacrifice. And my second thought is that the United States may have a habit of offering holidays in lieu of real structural change. Remembering veterans for a day is good but how about maintaining and expanding their health care? How about making homeless veteran an obsolete term? Labor Day is another day to pause and thank, but how about guaranteeing living wages and making it easier for workers to organize? Even Mother's Day, another day to pause and thank, but many of the moms I know would gladly trade brunch for a year of paid parenting leave and more funding for childcare. Choosing sentiment instead of action is an easy trap for humans to fall into. So back to Veterans Day. One of the things that changed in the years after World War II is that in 1947, the United States Department of War became the Department of Defense. This bit of linguistic gymnastics, combined with a fear of the spread of communism, made it easier to frame American military actions not as acts of war, but acts of protection defense, no matter how far flung or how politically or corporately motivated. Just two years after this change, George Orwell's novel 1984 came out. In the novel, major governmental departments include the Ministry of Truth, which is all about spreading lies, and the Ministry of Peace, which is all about war. Such changing of language to Defense Department and to Veterans Day is just one of the ways that being at war has become normalized in American life. We as a country have been at war continuously since 2001, with quite a long history of military actions before that. I have a quote here from retired Army Colonel Andrew Racevich who wrote in 2017, like traffic jams or robocalls, War has fallen into a category of things that Americans may not welcome, but have learned to live with. A collective indifference to war has become an emblem of contemporary America, he says, and he lost a son in one of our wars. Not only is our country capable of ignoring its past, it's easily seduced away from paying attention to the present, especially when the wars of the present remain profitable for the private sector businesses that supply them and especially when the wars don't personally affect a vast majority of Americans on any kind of daily basis. This outward focus of our resources can be a distraction from the fact that the biggest threats to America right now are not external aggression, but internal turmoil, and institutional and constitutional erosion. Abraham Lincoln once said that all the armies in the world couldn't bring down the United States, quote, in a trial of a thousand years. Rather, Lincoln said, if destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. Empires tend to collapse rather than be conquered from without. Our country's legislative branch was this past week partly restored to serving as one of the checks and balances. But this past week also showed us how wobbly things continue to be. Journalistic freedom continues to be endangered. The rule of law is at risk. Gun violence and the catastrophes related to climate change seem to continue unimpeded. The authoritarian strategy of exhausting us with chaos and bad news in the hope of making us complacent and numb remains in full force. With lies and propaganda and even doctored video, the Ministry of Truth is as busy as ever and the Ministry of Peace is itching for a fight. But here's the thing. Here's what it looks like today, right now, to serve your country. You do not need to enlist in the armed forces. You don't need combat boots. You don't need to fly to the other side of the world. After decades of exaggerated exterior threats, our country needs a different kind of Department of Defense, right now, here, on the inside. Defending our freedom to vote is not happening with soldiers in the Middle East. Defending our freedom to vote is happening right now with the advocates in Georgia and Florida trying to undo decades of race-based voter suppression. Both the troops and the advocates are serving our country. Standing up for the rule of law happened here on American soil on Thursday at the state capitol and at rallies across the nation. That's also what serving our country looks like. Dr. Christine Blasey Ford gave up her personal freedom and safety to try to keep an abusive liar from ascending to the Supreme Court. And because of continued threats, she has had to move four times since giving her testimony last month and has not been able to return to work. This is another way to sacrifice for one's country. And you know who's arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border? Yes, U.S. troops are there, sent by a commander-in-chief. But as MIBS pointed out, they don't pick the battles. They have to follow orders. So we don't blame the soldier for the poor choices of the leader. What's more important at the border is that there are volunteers right now all along it. They're helping migrants apply for asylum, leaving them water, cooking them food, and welcoming, welcoming them in the most basic and human ways. This is also a way to serve one's country. To help it live into its highest ideals as a beacon for true freedom, freedom whenever it falls short. There's a lot happening. And someday, years from now, we may look back at what our individual lives were like at this time and sweeten the memories a bit. The intensity of emotions may fade and we may not quite remember how relentless and at times overwhelming it all felt. That would be normal and okay. But right now, it's too early for the sweetening to begin. We need to take breaks and take care of ourselves, but denial of what our country is really like is how we got here in the first place. There are still plenty of dark clouds, but there are also the rainbows of opportunity for each of us to help bend the course of history. May each of us find the best use for our gifts, and may each of us serve our country. Forward together is the only way. May it be so.